Welcome to Protect, suicide prevention training podcast for healthcare professionals. I'm Manan, consultant psychiatrist, founder, and head of faculty at Progress Guide. Good day. This is Mahi, your host. We're on to episode 24. In the last four academic episodes, we have been discussing personality disorder. In episode 20, Manan provided an overview of all the personality disorders. We then started our in-depth journey in borderline personality disorder, spending time in episode 21 on the psychological phenomenon of splitting. In episode 22, we went through the diagnostic criterion and then shared Jill's story. We discussed how the wear factors influence different aspects of clinical decision-making. And in the last episode, we began to discuss fairly nuanced conversations that may be necessary with someone in suicidal crisis with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. The specific conversation was related to how we navigate anxiety. The conversation itself was called advice versus action. Manan, do you want to provide a quick recap of what the conversation entailed? Sure. In its simplest form, the conversation or reflection is all about asking the question, am I following my own advice? The advice that we give to people with BPD in crisis is to hang in there and to face their fears. The anxiety can be mastered and part of the therapeutic process is to learn to do that, not to give in to the urge to self-harm and regulate one's emotions. And every time one successfully does that, the brain learns that suicidal urges can be mastered. I don't need to be hospitalized to stay safe. That is the advice we give. But the advice in itself is fairly anxiety provoking for the practitioner as practitioners do worry about all the what ifs. What ifs? Like what if Jill can't keep herself safe? Yes. What if she does end up taking her life? What if I get blamed for it? What if in an investigation they find me to be negligent as she's clearly voicing suicidal thoughts and I'm not admitting her? And you made the point that the anxiety generated by self-doubt in the practitioner may result in the practitioner not facing their own fears and giving in to the urge to admit. Yes, many professionals operate with the mindset, better be safe than sorry. One has to ask, better for whom? Better for the patient or better for the professional? Admissions may be indicated, but generally they are not that helpful in people with borderline personality disorder particularly when the anxiety can be navigated with appropriate positive risk-taking. And if you don't do that, it is actually harmful for the person in distress to admit them. So if the professional does not follow their own advice in their decisions, in their actions. So to cut a long story short, your suggestion was that professionals need to role model their advice. If the main therapeutic intervention in the treatment of BPD is to face your fears, the professional needs to do the same. That's correct. This is a nice segue into the next conversation, empowerment versus containment. But before that, a recap of Jill's story so you can put the conversation into context. Jill is a 30-year-old female who has presented to the ED in suicidal crisis, requesting admission. The background is that she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder a few months back. She is case managed by the Mood Community team and awaiting DBT. She has had multiple crisis admissions in the past that have been generally unhelpful with increasing self-harm and aggression on the ward that requires constant observation and seclusion to manage safety. 
On assessment, you established that there is worsening suicidal ideation in the context of recent relationship conflict. She's feeling hopeless and wants to end it all. She's seeking safety and containment through admission. Following the assessment, you call the on-call consultant to discuss Jill's presentation. Given Jill's past history of hospital admissions, which were generally unhelpful where her self-harming escalated, a decision is made to avoid admission. The consultant strongly recommends to you that Jill should engage with community team and avoid admission if possible. You were concerned about Jill getting highly dysregulated when she is told that she will be sent back home. You have opened the conversation with Jill using the in-paths technique that we described in the previous episode, sharing with Jill your thoughts and your dilemma. You have put your cards on the table saying, part of you is worried about Jill maintaining her safety in the community, but the other part knows that that is what recovery entails. Jill has to face her fears and learn that the anxiety of feeling unsafe can be mastered. Jill is gobsmacked and tells you that she can't believe that she's telling you that she's worried about keeping herself safe and you just don't care and are sending her home. This is where the next conversation comes in. Containment versus empowerment. And it relates to the second aware factor, waiting. Jill is looking for containment and you are talking about empowerment. There is a clear dissonance between the two positions and somehow common ground has to be established for relational safety to be restored. Do you actually think that any practitioner will take risks of this magnitude when a person is clearly feeling suicidal? I don't disagree with what you're saying. This is a highly anxiety-provoking situation for all concerned, and that's why we discussed the whole advice versus action, you know, in the previous episode. I also do understand the drive for self-preservation in a practitioner, but that's why the right training, reflective practice... And supervision comes in to enable you to do right by the person, not just in the here and now, but also in the longer term. We pick this up in a later conversation where we discuss the short term versus long term. You mentioned that this conversation relates to waiting. Will you just remind our listeners about what is waiting in the WHERE framework? So waiting is on page 52 of the guidebook. It is the second factor in AWARE and captures how suicidality in someone like Jill with BPD gets diluted by their diagnosis, chronicity of repeat presentations, and the nature of the crisis, which is often social in origin, following relationship conflicts, financial issues, accommodation problems, and sometimes alcohol and drug misuse as well. Remember that the standardized mortality ratio of suicide in severe BPD is the highest, 45.1. In comparison, depression's SMR is 19.7. So the diagnosis increases risk. It actually doesn't decrease it. SMR is standardized mortality ratio. It is the ratio between the number of observed suicides in people with a specific diagnosis compared to the expected number of suicide in a matched standard population. So... For every suicide that happens in the general population, one can expect almost 20 suicides in those with a diagnosis of depression and 45 in those with a diagnosis of BPD. I should have mentioned earlier that in the workbook, the worksheet that these conversations relate to are on pages 20 and 21, worksheet 6.4. So three sub-themes in the waiting aware factor, diagnosis, course, and social causation. Yes, 
It is really important to remember that a diagnosis of BPD with repeat crisis presentations does not mean that your clinical input will be lower. If anything, it will be more because of the higher SMR. We have talked about this in episode 16. I'm assuming it is the different approach to therapeutic risk management that you were talking about when you say containment versus empowerment. Yes, containment will be our response to a sudden peak in risk in terms, of course, what we would consider to be an acute presentation. There has been a step change in the person's presentation. Now, our response to this needs to be like a response to someone having a myocardial infarction or a stroke. Yes, we did discuss this metaphor in episode 16. I remember this discussion. You talked about taking definitive steps, like in a patient with chest pain having a heart attack, where the professionals take control of the situation. Yes, so jump in and do what needs to be done. The mental health comparator will be someone presenting in acute suicidal distress, a distinct development from their baseline mental health. Here, containment is what is needed, and one may take more restrictive measures like an inpatient admission. Essentially, by containment, you were saying where the professional takes charge of safety. Yes, that would be an appropriate response in a situation like this. The inpatient setting may be much more restrictive than treatment at home, but it is justified in that situation as there is a clear escalation from the baseline. So that is for acute risk. Tell us about the approach to chronic risk. In chronic risk, for someone like Jill with a personality disorder, remember that those with BPD may also have comorbid or chronic depression too. So you may be dealing with a combination of chronic mental health challenges, not just one condition. So their battle with suicidality may be a daily event. Essentially, their baseline is elevated and the risk has daily or even hourly, but minor fluctuations going in between ideation and intention. And we'll talk about this more when we go through the steps model. You know, sometimes speaking into action with self-harm to release the inbuilt tension rather than with the intent to take their life. In the online safety planning courses at Progress Guide, I've seen videos where you talk about the concept of acquired capability. I am assuming this repeated self-harm or living with suicidal thoughts and plans is a good example of that. Actually, that is a very insightful observation. Uh, Those who self-harm repeatedly are desensitized to pain and the idea of death by suicide, very similar to soldiers and health professionals who are exposed to pain and death fairly regularly. This acquired capability may actually explain the high standardized mortality ratio of 45.1 in people with BPD. So you were saying the baseline risk is elevated in someone with BPD fluctuating between ideation and intention. Yes. Now, every time Jill presents in crisis, it will be inadvisable and also impractical to admit her. But doesn't the high SMR mean that you should? It means that Jill needs help and active support rather than an admission. Jill does not need containment. Jill needs empowerment. The goal has to be to help Jill understand that she can navigate through this period of heightened suicidality. So this is where the containment versus empowerment theme arises from. Yes, but please remember the response to Jill needs to be equally thorough, if not more, than to someone with acute suicidality, say, due to acute depression. It is qualitatively different, though, to the one of a patient, say, having a heart attack. 
I've mentioned in episode 16 of how I think of the Jills as patients who have a severe diabetic illness and they need rigorous support to help them stay on top of their diabetes. A lot of that is self-monitoring and self-regulation, taking adequate insulin, eating appropriately, avoiding hypoglycemic states, getting adequate wound care if they get a cut and so on. So for chronic risk, rigorous support like in severe diabetes, but care that is primarily led by the person and the person has to take charge of their recovery. And Empower Jill is the outcome one is hoping for. Yes. So we draw on Jill's internal coping strategies, help them understand that suicidal urges come in waves. Every time they use an internal coping strategy successfully, they learn that these urges can be mastered. So the focus is very much on learning distress tolerance and affect regulation. In the guidebook, coping strategies are discussed on pages 143 and 156, but we will cover them later when we do episodes on their SPIRE module, specifically the safety planning chapters. So what you were saying about Jill is that a lot of work has to be done following an assessment, and in many ways, admitting will be the easier thing to do, and will defeat the treatment objective of supporting Jill's journey into an empowered space. Absolutely. And there may be a temptation to rationalize Jill's risk away as low or non-existent, as not much has changed. But people with chronic risk need rigorous safety planning particularly as it is more likely that they would be managed in the community. So a lot of work and maybe even more work needs to go into chronic risk management than acute risk management where you step in and take control and just contain the situation. Empowerment is a much harder route. And this additional work is to prevent people with chronic risk tipping into suicidal action. Assuming if you are in that ideation intention tier of the steps model, it will not take much to tip one over into a full-blown crisis. That is exactly correct. Understanding triggers, early warning signs, when to use internal coping strategies, when to use external coping strategies. When has it become a crisis? When is it an emergency? So clarity over what to do when and with whom is essential. So a lot of work involved in mitigating chronic risk, just, just like in supporting people with severe diabetes. So for acute risk... Deliver care like you would for someone having a heart attack. And for chronic risk, deliver care for someone with severe diabetes. This whole containment versus empowerment discussion is reminiscent of the care compass. That is again an extremely insightful comment and will help the listener connect the dots. So if you all remember care compass, we discussed this in, well, it's in chapter two in the guidebook, page 10. And if you don't know what the Care Compass is, my recommendation will be to go and listen to episodes three and four. So in brief, the Care Compass has two axes. X represents resilience in the distressed individual. So the eastern end or the right end of the axis is resilient, rated at plus five. And the western end or the left end is the fragile, rated as minus five. The y-axis represents the principal focus of care delivery for the professional. So if you think about it, the x-axis relates to the person in distress and the y-axis relates to the professional. So the y-axis, uh, the northern end or the top end, relates to self-reliance rated at plus five and the sudden or the bottom end relates to safety rated at minus five. The numbers plus or minus five does not actually indicate right or wrong. It is just to graphically demonstrate the degree of resilience in the person on the x-axis 
and the clinician's primary focus on the y-axis. This is much easier to follow if you have the diagram in front of you and the diagram in the guidebook is on page 10. The two axes give rise to four care quadrants, bottom left or southwest, prudent care, top right or northeast, permissive care, bottom right or southeast, prescriptive care, and top left or northwest, precarious care. So we've described this in detail before, how recovery entails movement from prudent care, which is the bottom left quadrant, to permissive care, which is the top right quadrant. With Jill, if you only focus on containment and hospital admission every time she presents in crisis, then we will be pushing her care trajectory. Either either we are keeping it just in prudent care or we are pushing her from prudent care into prescriptive care, which is bottom left. And that is not the goal of recovery. You know, your own ceiling of expectation from Jill becomes Jill's own ceiling of expectation of herself. If you cannot come around to believing that Jill cannot manage her safety, then nor can Jill. A verbal description without the care compass may be confusing. Remember, you can get the images and the show notes at www.progress.guide. So a practitioner's goal is to keep Jill in the top right permissive care quadrant, where the focus is on empowerment, creating longer term resilience and recovery. Are there times when this may not be the case? Yes, There are times when actually care for Jill needs to be in the prudent care quadrant where the clinician's focus is primarily on safety and not on creating longer term resilience as they relate to scenarios where the risk is acute on chronic. Put simply, when you have an acute on chronic situation, it is like caring for those with a severe diabetes in the midst of a heart attack. So they really should be the top of your response list. If you're not able to differentiate acute on chronic risk from chronic risk, one is bound to take the wrong approach. In care quadrant terms, if you mistake acute on chronic risk as chronic, you know, you can focus on empowerment rather than the essential containment that you need to provide at that time. And you will be pushing Jill into the top left precarious care quadrant. So Jill is so fragile that she's not able to manage her safety and the clinician's focus has prematurely shifted to resilience. Yes, you all will remember from the nautical metaphor of navigating rocky waters. If prematurely a person is asked to take charge of the recovery, it may be like pushing someone out into open waters on a raft with very few sea survival skills. That is why it is so important to predefine in a person-centered way For each individual, what does acute on chronic risk look for them? So for someone who self-harms, it might be their frequency of self-harming goes up from once or twice a week to daily, or they go from self-harming on the concealed parts of their body to their neck and face, or their cuts are getting quite deep and are no longer superficial. This discussion needs to be undertaken when the person is calm and it works best when you conceptualize these discussions with Jill almost like an advanced directive, you know, pre-planning care for these situations. So even if you take restrictive measures focused primarily on containment, Jill has had a say in it and does not destroy her self-belief in managing her safety longer term. If anything, it enhances it as she begins to believe that she can proactively identify such risky scenarios and contribute meaningfully to her safety. In my experience, designing the safety net actually decreases the frequency of such crisis as well. This is very relevant for community care coordinators 
or case managers, as well as community-based psychologists and psychiatrists. But you do spend a lot of time talking about this kind of ultra-high-risk scenarios in the suicide prevention training for GPs and primary care professionals. It's a training program called LIFE, designed for primary care folk. They are the ones who deal with a lot of chronic ongoing risk. And doing this workup when the going is good provides clear trigger points of when to escalate to secondary care for short-term intensive crisis support, you know, for these difficult periods to subside and for them to return back to primary care again. Most secondary care mental health professionals struggle to support people with personality disorder. So you can imagine how difficult it is in primary care with 10-minute appointments. But remember, it can be a sequence of 10-minute appointments. That's what our GPs have. That is what management of chronic risk involves. And if one or two of those 10-minute appointments are utilized for forward planning, a lot of risk can be managed. I strongly believe that our GPs and primary care clinicians need these skills. And that's why we have designed a specific program for them to talk through these challenging scenarios and how can they meaningfully contribute to safety for people like Jill, who may be in chronic suicidality for a long period of time and the GP is the primary source of support for them. Sounds like the escalation from primary to secondary care will be the equivalent of containment and ongoing management in primary care, the equivalent of empowerment, if the starting point is in primary care. That is spot on. In secondary care, by containment, we tend to think of an inpatient admission. And by empowerment, we tend to think of community management. So in the next episode, we will pick up the next conversation in patient versus community. But you're right, in the primary care setting, if they continue to be managed in primary care, you can think of that as empowerment. And if they do need escalation for intensive crisis support, that would be containment. And in the next episode, when we talk through inpatient versus community, and that would be for secondary care settings, you know, we will go through some practical examples in terms of words to use when talking to Jill or to Jill's family. Actually, I just noticed that we haven't provided specific techniques, like the in-parts technique we discussed in the previous session, and we have run out of time. Most of these conversations are related, and I would request listeners to go back to episodes three and four, as the visual prop of the Care Compass can be very helpful in having some of these discussions with Jill. I'm aware that as I was describing the Care Compass, if you don't know what it is I'm talking about in terms of the axis and the quadrants, it might have been very confusing as to what is it that we were trying to say moving from this quadrant to another quadrant. So just drawing out the two axes and drawing Jill into a conversation about where she believes she is and where you as the professional believe she is and the reason why the focus on empowerment is essential to recovery. I think in episode four, we go into a fair bit of detail as to how you can use the care compass. You may actually have to say, like I mentioned in the previous episode, Jill, the easiest thing I can do for you is to admit you. And we will all sleep better tonight knowing your immediate safety needs have been met. But I know if I did that, I am being negligent towards my responsibilities to you. And I'm not doing the harder but essential work that relates to resilience through empowerment. Resilience through empowerment. That has a nice ring to it. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Beautiful words by William Ernest Henley to end this episode on. I am the master of my fate. 
I'm the captain of my soul. The goal of every mental health professional when supporting a person in suicidal distress is to capture hope, reconnect the person with their strengths, and recreate self-belief and agency, and in the process, make themselves irrelevant in the person's lives so that they can remain the master of their fate and the captain of their soul. Containment versus empowerment is a critical consideration in supporting people with BPD on their road to recovery. When communicating a difficult decision, if you have the theoretical foundations of why you are making the decision you are making, it becomes so much easier to open up a window into your own mind so the person in distress can clearly see your reasoning. If you are able to get across your role, you will heal any ruptures in relational safety. Remember, that is the essence of all these conversations. Have you had a scenario like Jill's where you have explained your role and how, through your decisions, you are trying to empower her and reconnect her with her self-belief that she can master these suicidal urges? Based on what you have heard, what changes will you make to such interactions? If you have specific questions, please do email us at admin at progress.guide. Share your musings with us. Tweet your thoughts and tag hashtag guideprogress. It helps get the word out about the podcast to more professionals and supports progress to practice. You can access all the transcripts at www.progress.guide. You can connect with Manan on LinkedIn or follow our LinkedIn page by searching on LinkedIn for progress.guide. We are also on Twitter and YouTube. Our Twitter handle is at guideprogress. As usual, please do follow the podcast. There'll be weekly episodes every Friday and share it with your colleagues. Your ratings will help get the word out, so please don't forget to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Audible, or whichever channel you are listening on. Next week, we will go deeper into inpatient care versus community care, and certain innovative approaches that combine both. Challenges in supporting people with borderline personality disorder is a common knowledge and skills deficits. Given severe borderline personality disorder has a standardized mortality ratio of 45.1, it is a critical area for suicide prevention. Helping healthcare professionals fine-tune their practice in this area is an essential step in creating a workforce that delivers high-quality care for people in suicidal distress. Remember, together we can make a difference. Thank you for joining us today and keep spreading the word.